Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. I want to welcome those of you watching online. We remember you. We think of you. We're so encouraged that you're joining us still here on the online stream tonight. I want to welcome those of you in the room and ask you to grab your Bibles if you got it uh, and go to 1 Kings chapter 11 as we are in week three out of four uh, of a teaching series we have titled Cautionary Tales, um, looking at four generations of individuals, four generations really of men in the Old Testament and seeing the ways that they have blown up their lives with the hope that we won't have to make the same mistake. Now tonight as we jump into 1 Kings chapter 11, as we jump into the text uh, that we're going to look through, the scripture we're going to look at, and the story we're going to follow, uh, I want to kind of identify that of the four weeks we're going to do during this series, uh, I think this is the week you are going to be tempted to say, not me. This is the week you're going to be tempted to say, no, I've heard that, I get that, but I don't really think that's me. You see, tonight we're going to talk about a subject that is actually going to take a little bit of effort for you to really see where this plays out in your life. It's going to feel less emotional, like jealousy or like sexuality or about the subject we'll speak about next week. And it's going to really be something that you really have to dig to find. What do I mean by that? Tonight we're going to talk about the subject of idolatry. We're going to talk about the subject of idolatry. And one biblical scholar put it this way, world-renowned biblical scholar said, the entire point of the Bible, like the principal theme of the Bible, is the rejection of idolatry and the embrace of the one true God. Tonight I want to talk to you about idolatry. I want you to understand what idolatry is. If you've been around church, you've heard us talk about this, but I don't assume all of you have been around church. So what I, what I can describe it to you is this way. Um, Tim Keller, an author, pastor in New York City, puts it this way. He says this, an idol is anything more important to you than God? Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God? Anything you seek to give what only God can give? Anything that is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living? An idol is anything you put in the place of God, anything you put before God. We were just singing minutes ago, there's nothing better than you, God. An idol is when you say, there's nothing better than you, God, except, right? That's an idol. An idol is anything we think is better than God, anything we seek for satisfaction, meaning, purpose, anything that is ultimate in our life over God. I could give you a thousand examples of the way idols play out. I could give you a bunch of examples, and I want to give you some here. Uh, I'm going to put up on screen what are maybe some of the most common ones. You, you hear people have the idol of money. Like they want money above all else. They want wealth and material possessions. Sex can become an idol, and I think it's an idol for many in our culture who say the one thing I'll never say no to, the one thing I'll never deny is my sexual urges. Power is an idol. The people who want to be in control and be powerful. Fame can be an idol. Building your platform or your reputation or your notoriety can be a platform. Pleasure can be a, an idol. Listen, comfort is an idol. And I'm just going to go out here and say that I think in our community, comfort is one of the most rampant idols we've ever experienced. I, I think some of you have built your entire life around never being uncomfortable. You've built your entire life over never having an awkward moment. Your biggest fear isn't death. It isn't public speaking. It's being in a moment, not knowing what to say, and having an awkward pause. And some of you have built your entire life so there's no awkwardness or uncomfortability. Comfort is your idol. Ideology can be an idol. It can be a political ideology. It can be a theological ideology. It's some commitment you have to some kind of cause or some kind of idea that can be on the political right. It can be on the political left. Ideology is an idol that has run rampant, especially in this last year. 
Political power, politics can be your idol. Uh, like you notice the way some people talk about politics, they don't put it subservient to God, that they have this idea that politics is the end all be all of everything. And so all their hope, all their passion, all their faith is put in politicians rather than in the one true God. Marriage can be an idol, children can be an idol. Uh, like there's some of you out here tonight that if you knew that you were never going to have children, it would devastate you. It would take all meaning and goodness out of life. That means children are an idol for you. But listen, activism can be an idol, like political activism, social activism, social justice activism. I'm not saying that stuff is wrong. I'm just saying if that becomes ultimate over everything, including God, it will become an idol for you. Like hear me on this, patriotism can become an idol. The United States of America can become an idol. And I love my nation. I love my country, but I do not worship my country. I love it. I don't worship it. It can become an idol. And you probably know people who have elevated the flag so closely to Jesus, you can't tell which is which. And then finally, maybe the most popular idol is yourself. <laughs> like you can be an idol for you. And you can be an idol for you anytime that you decide that everything you believe is up to you and you, everything in your life is under your authority. Nothing comes next to you. Whatever you want, you satisfy. No one tells you what to do. You have become the God of your own life. Listen, Tim Keller is going to say an idol is anything we put above God, before God, anything we seek more than God. Now, these are ideas. These are words up on a screen. But what I want to point out is that your idols are always more subtle than these words on a screen. Like, I just don't think there's any, again, I don't think there's any of you who just go like, yeah, absolutely. Like, children, I love my, I love the idea of having kids more than God. Like, no one here says pleasure, like, that is my God. Like, like, and like a pure hedonist would say that, but none of us actually say this. What happens is idolatry doesn't show up explicitly in our belief systems. It shows up implicitly in the things that we say. It shows up subtly. It shows up without us knowing. So let me give you a few phrases tonight. And I believe these phrases are so common, you've probably said them, maybe even said them today. But I want to try to point out the idolatry that comes underneath some of these phrases. I want to try to point out that idolatry is not just this in-your-face thing, but it's a subtle thing all of us experience I won't ask you to raise your hand, but I wonder if any of you have ever said these words, I am a perfectionist. Some of you are this way. You're like, I am a one on the Enneagram. I am a perfectionist. That is how I am. And you just kind of like defined your whole life by needing to be perfect and nothing's ever good enough and it has to be absolutely perfect. You know what you've done? You've given into the idol of performance. And it seems like so innocuous. It seems like such not a big deal. I'm a perfectionist. It's just who I am. I believe you've actually given in to the idol of needing to perform, needing to show others how perfect you actually are. And if you are not careful, that idol will destroy your life. Let me pick on a different group of people. You ever said these words? I'm a workaholic. I'm a workaholic. And workaholic is like the best aholic to be, right? Because workaholic just means you work hard and hard work is good and hard work is a great thing. Can I just persuade you tonight that if you're saying I'm a workaholic, what you're worshiping is the idol of achievement? It's the idea that the most important thing is that you would achieve and everyone would see you achieving. And for some of you, it's not even about people seeing you achieve. It's just about that satisfying moment where you put a check on your to-do list and that just feels so good. For some of you, the greatest idol in your life is the idol of achievement. For, for some of you, you've said this phrase even in the last week, I am a control freak. And it's so weird that we're able to say that with a straight face and not think that's like a huge problem. Do you know that's just I, I, worshiping the idol of control? The idol that you actually control your future and control your life and control what's going on in this world. I want us to notice how subtle this is. 
I want us to notice that we tend to think these are just kind of personality quirks, but underneath these personality quirks are these idols that are pulling us in. Some of you have said this. Some of you would define yourself in this way. You'd say, I am a people pleaser. I've always been a people pleaser. I always want to make people happy. I never want to make people mad. My biggest fear is conflict with other people. And you are worshiping at the shrine of approval, of needing everyone else's approval. And if you haven't realized this already, it will wreck your life. Like if you just go through this life constantly needing everyone to approve of you and always being terrified that someone might disagree or look down on you, it will ruin you. Like maybe some of you have said it this way, and I'm speaking to a room full of single people, a room filled with people who are not yet married. Someone was like, hallelujah. Yeah, that's right. We are in this room filled with single people. You know what some of you say? Once I get married, then I'll be happy. Do you know you've fallen into? You've fallen into the idol of romance. If you actually think you cannot be satisfied, happy, content, and at peace in this life until you're married, you are worshiping at the idol of romance. And here's the bummer for you. You might actually get married, but your spouse will never fulfill you. <laughs> yeah, they never will. They, they can't. It's an impossible weight you've put upon them. If you find another frail, broken human being that is willing to marry you, and then you say, become my God, you will, two things will happen to you. One is it will crush your, your partner, right? Your spouse. It will crush them. Because they can't live up to that expectation. And then it will endlessly disappoint you. Like, listen, marriage is a good, beautiful, God-honoring thing. But if your idea is, until I get married, I'll never be happy. And once I get married, everything will be perfect in my life because I'll have a marriage and I'll have kids and I'll have babies and a white picket fence and everything will be perfect in my life. If you've fallen into that romantic idea, you are worshiping at the shrine of romance. Maybe you've said this, whatever happens, I just don't want to be uncomfortable. I talked about this being an idol in our area, especially for some of you, you're just so scared of being in a conversation and someone says something and it's awkward and uncomfortable. Can I get real here? Okay, we're having these racial conversations all throughout our country. Very good that we're having conversations. You know what the biggest danger for some people, including people like me, is in those conversations? We just don't want to be uncomfortable. And so what we do is we avoid conversations that are difficult or we avoid conversations where we might feel kind of icky or guilty or gross or weird inside or not know what to say. And so instead of going into uncomfortable conversations where it might be difficult, we bow out. What are we doing? We're worshiping at the idol of comfort. The idol of comfort will destroy you because you'll feel safe all along, but you'll never actually grow. Can I give you another one that some of you bought into in this last year? Here's the sentence. If blank doesn't get elected, all hope is lost. If this person doesn't get into the office, all hope is lost. If this party doesn't win the Senate or the House, or if this judge doesn't get on this court, all is lost. And if you have ever bought into this idea, you are worshiping at the altar of politics and power. You are worshiping at it. And I need you to know that that will wreck and ruin your life. Because I don't know if you've noticed, it tends to flip-flop back and forth in this country, right? Like, like, like there's never been a moment where it's like, this party won forever, right? And you will find yourself miserable. Like, listen, if you ever find yourself thinking, all of my hope is in getting this person elected, you will be miserable forever. Um, next one. Um, this will uh, make some of you real mad tonight. Um, we have to trust the science. Let's talk about this one for a second. The scientific method is one of the greatest blessings human beings have ever figured out. It allows us to see the world somewhat, at least as best as we can through a process objectively. I'll say this. It allows us to know facts about the world, but it does not allow us to have values about the world. 
Well, let me put it this way. Science can tell us what is about the world, but it cannot tell us what we should do about the world. And so when people throw out their trust the science as if just like the scientific method will tell us everything about what is and how we have to live, I don't want to disappoint you. And I don't want to stand up here and say science has no value. Science has a value. But if your idea is science will save us and science is the answer and science is the greatest and science is the great hope for humanity, I have disappointing news for you. That some of the greatest atrocities in the history of the world have happened through science. So listen to me. I'm not anti-science. I am pro-science. I am pro-us understanding the world and being intelligent, thinking Christians. I'm just not pro-worshiping at the altar of knowledge and science because it's not going to save us. Technology, science, intellectualism is not what is going to save humanity. Let me give you the next one. Um, People say this all the time. It sounds so innocent. The most important thing to me is my family. And who could be mad about that? And listen, if you ever say that, I'm not going to be, excuse me, what about God, right? Like, that's not the point. The the problem is that some people actually mean that. And so their whole world is built around their family rather than building their whole world around God. And again, the problem is the same thing with marriage, right? If your whole world is your family, what happens when your family disappoints you? In case any of you have families who have ever disappointed you, I'm sure none of you have ever had your family ever disappoint you in any way. But in case that happens, what are you going to do? Because now your whole God has just collapsed on you. Listen, your family is a good gift, but it is not your God. Then let me give you one final sentence that some of us say. It's this. We say, I know God has forgiven me. I just can't forgive myself. You know what this is? It's the idol of you. It's the idol of self. If you're saying, you know, God has forgiven me. I just haven't forgiven myself. I need to forgive myself. Here's what you're saying. Yes, God, your forgiveness is fine. But you know the forgiveness that really matters? This guy. See, listen to me. Every time we think, you know, I know what you said, God, but I don't feel that way. What we're saying is the locus of authority and control and importance is not in God Almighty, but rather in our own hearts, in our own minds. Here's what I'm trying to convey to you tonight. There are subtle little ways that idols drift into our life. And if you're not careful, it will take over your life. If you're not careful, it will own you. It will destroy you. And you won't even see it coming. Like the person who says, well, I just love my family. My whole world is my family. There's nothing bad about that sentence. No one thinks that's bad. But when you put that kind of weight on something that cannot bear that weight, it will crush you. And it will crush the people you're trying to love. Tim Keller, again, in this book, Counterfeit Gods, which I recommend fully to you, says this. He says, I'm not asking you whether you have rival gods. I assume that we all do. They're hidden in every one of us. And the question is, what do we do about them? And tonight, in our brief time here, I just want to try to answer that question. What do you do about the rival gods in your life? What do you do about the fact that there seems to be sometimes things you want and value and like and think about more than God himself? We have to answer that question. And the reason we have to answer that question, the reason it matters so much for you is not just some kind of religious idea that God's supposed to be first. I want you to understand that you rooting out and identifying and getting rid of your idols is actually for God's glory, but it's also for your good because here's what I'm convinced of, that idolatry is the source of your chronic discontent. Like to anyone in this room listening online tonight who just constantly feels discontented, dissatisfied, like the world's not lurking out like you wanted it to, your life doesn't seem like it should be, things just don't seem like they should be. If you have this kind of chronic discontent in your life, I want you to know tonight's sermon is for you. I want you to know that tonight's sermon is to help you identify your idols and to help you replace your idols with the love of the true God, the living God, with the love of Jesus Christ. So again, we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 11. 
Uh, and you're going to turn there in your Bible, be in the first verse. I just want to read for you a verse in the chapter before that, in 1 Kings chapter 10. Um, it says this real briefly in 1 Kings 10, 14. It's going to talk about Solomon, the individual we're going to talk about tonight. And it says, the weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents. Okay, so this whole chapter, chapter 10 of 1 Kings, is going to tell us all about Solomon's wealth. And what it is going to describe is Solomon as the wealthiest individual who has ever lived. Like he makes Bill Gates and Bezos and any of these guys look small, okay? Like it says that his annual salary here is 666 talents, which translates into our system of 25 tons of gold a year, which would be about the equivalent of $130 million salary every single year. All right, Solomon was wealthy beyond belief. Solomon had more money than you could possibly imagine. And yet... Here's what I'm going to present to you tonight. The richest man in the history of the world is going to struggle with idolatry like you wouldn't possibly believe. And here's the myth. The myth is if you have enough money and you get enough advanced as a society and you become technological and rich and sophisticated like the United States of America, then idolatry will no longer be an issue in your life. Uh, and yet I just want to present to you over and over and over again tonight that the, the Bible's view on wealth is not you'll get wealthy and things will get better for you spiritually. The Bible is deeply skeptical of wealth. And the Bible is deeply skeptical of societies that have lots of wealth. In fact, I'll say it this way. I'll say that wealth in the scriptures, wealth is a magnet for idolatry. Wealth is a magnet for idolatry. Wealth draws these idols toward us. Like the Bible does not have a high view of wealth and money and possessions. And, and here's what you need to know. Again, every time I talk about wealth and money and possessions in this room, I, I just assume there's a lot of people who go, like, that's not me because I can barely afford Taco Bell, right? Like, like I have to decide whether to do my car registration or just risk it with the ticket, right? Some of you are there, right? But, but, but listen to me. If you have not already figured out that you live in the wealthiest society in the history of human civilization, I need to break it to you that you do. And the poorest person in this room is richer than the kings of the ancient world. Like richer than all sorts, probably not Solomon, okay? But richer than all of these individuals. Like we need to understand that wealth is this magnet for idolatry. And I want us to see how that plays out in the scripture tonight. So again, 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1, with the context that this is a wealthy, well-to-do society. Everything's doing well. Here's what it says. It says, King Solomon, however... And, and King Solomon, by the way, is the, the son of David, who we studied last week, if you were with us. Last week, we looked at David. King Solomon is his son. It says, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughters, Moabite, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from the nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. So I'm, I'm, I want to observe something that's not really part of the idolatry sermon tonight. I just want to kind of observe for you. Um, there are people who take verses like this in the Bible and twist them to mean things they never, never meant to mean. So what you'll see here is there is a command from God to the people of Israel that you are not supposed to marry people from other nations. And the risk and the danger, even for Christians today, is that there will be this kind of ideology that takes a hold of that and says, see, interracial marriage is not supposed to be a thing. And maybe you have never believed that, but I need you to know there are Christians who talk about that, Christians who believe that, Christians who teach it, and think they're basing it on the Bible. But can I always just encourage you to be someone who reads the Bible carefully? Because if you read the Bible carefully, it doesn't say you must not intermarry with them because intermarriage is wrong. No, God has a specific reason for a specific people not to intermarry. And what is that? Because 
Always look for, circle, underline, highlight words like because in the Bible. Because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. This is a specific command to a specific group of people that they would not intermarry with other nations. Why? Not because intermarriage is wrong, but because God knows these people will go after their gods if they marry. And we're going to see exactly that play out in the text tonight. So here's what I want to put before you as we talk about idolatry. Um, The big problem for the people of God and the big concern God has when he says that we do not want your heart, God does not want your hearts turned after other gods. God's biggest concern is not that his people would go and become atheists. God's biggest concern is that they would go marry other gods and then start to treat Yahweh, the Lord, Jehovah God, the God of heaven and earth, that they would start to treat him as one God among many. Like, here's the concern of God. Can I give you a picture, a mental image for idolatry? Let let me show you the greatest um, culinary adventure, uh, invention that human beings have ever come up with. And that is, of course, the buffet, okay? Um, There is nothing like an all-you-can-eat buffet. And if you're like, well, I'm not really into that, we'll pray for you, okay? Because buffets are amazing, okay? Buffet, here's what great great about buffets. You roll into the buffet and like you go up and you're like, "Mm, I'll have a little of this. Like I always like double up on the rolls, right? Because at a restaurant, sorry, that's just me. Okay. But anyway, you get the best stuff, right? And you roll through the buffet and you're like, I'll have double of that, double of that. And then you hit the green bean bin. And you're like, I don't have to do green beans. Why? Because it's a buffet. No one's making me. And you skip over the things you don't want. You add the things you like. And do you know that some people do faith that way? I actually wonder if some of you do faith that way. What you do is you just roll through the buffet of the religious things of this world. You're like, I'll have a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of Buddha and a little bit of mindfulness and meditation, which is like prayer without the best part, which is actually, you know, talking to God. Like, yeah, I'll have a little bit of that. And then I'll have a little bit of like neuropsychology and I'll have a little bit of like productivity training and I'll add a little bit of social justice and a little bit of patriotism. And you just kind of blend together this faith that looks exactly like you. You ever notice that when you pick and choose what you want, you tend to create a God who looks exactly like you? It's like God creates us in his image, and we're like, God, we'll do the same. We'll create you in our image. And this is the great fear for the people of God. See, see, listen, God is not a buffet where you just get to pick what you want and add what you want to it. Here's what God is. God is not an all-you-can-eat buffet. God is a plated meal. You can take them. You can leave them. You can like them. You cannot like him. You can like parts of him, but not other parts of him. Like, I would love this chicken, but that mushroom, like, I'm, I'm not a mushroom guy. You can't convince me mushrooms are good. They're not, okay? Like, would not be into the mushrooms, but I like the chicken. Sort of into the asparagus, just to say I ate healthy, but let's also, just potatoes are the best part of every meal, right? And, and so we do this, right? This is, like, imagine this is God. Here it is. It's a plated meal. You can take it. You can leave it. You can like all of it. You can hate all of it. But the truth is, God is not someone you can construct in your likeness and in your image. See, this is the issue for Solomon. The the issue for the ancient Israelites. Can I put it this way? Um, The people of Israel didn't abandon God. See, that's the thing. They didn't abandon God. The people of Israel added to God. The people of Israel said, yeah, 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 God. But also the idol from over here and the God from over there and the ideas from those people. And and they just kind of pulled together a buffet of all their favorite things. And can I tell you, it's the same struggle for you today. The same struggle for you. Listen, your great temptation is not to abandon God. See, everyone thinks the great temptation is toward atheism. I'm not convinced that's the case. The great temptation is to add things that has nothing to do with God onto God because it works in our culture, because you got this idea from someone else, because it's a tradition from human beings. The great temptation for the people of God is not atheism, it's idolatry. 
And that's what Solomon's dealing with. God's going, don't intermarry with them. Don't take them as your wives. You will start to add to me. You will start to make me a buffet when I am a plated meal that you can take, you can reject, you can enjoy, you can hate, but you cannot change me because I am the unchangeable God. It goes on this way in the back half of verse two. It says, nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. Said he has 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. Okay, we talked last week about sex, right? Um, can, can we just confess here that, that Solomon's got some kind of problem here? Like, like Solomon, big time, needs a group. Solomon needs to listen to last week's sermon, right? Like Solomon's got a huge issue here. He's got 700 wives, okay? I've got one wife. I, 700, like, I just can't imagine. And 300 concubines. There's a thousand women he's having sex with. At some rate, this is not even like physically possible, right? At some rate, this is like, what, what is even the point of this? It's not like he had two wives or three wives because he wanted some variety. He had a thousand women that he was sleeping with. And you think about this, and here's what you realize. You realize that the problem for Solomon isn't that he wanted a few other wives. You realize that at some point he bought into an ideology or he bought into the idol of sexuality or he bought into the idol of pleasure. And here's the problem with idols. The problem with idols is they do not self-regulate. Let me put it this way. Idols never say, that's enough, right? They never say, you can stop now. That's enough. You don't have to keep pursuing this. The problem with idols is there's no end point. You'll never be satisfied in them. Like Solomon wants wives and he wants pleasure and he wants women. Probably wants the status of having a thousand women around him, right? That makes him look cool. But the problem is it never ends. It just keeps going. Like, can I tell you it's the same for whatever idol you're going to pursue? Listen, if you're pursuing the idol of money and think wealth and possessions and a nice house and a nice car and a big income are going to make you happy, can I convince you tonight that you will never have enough money? No one I've met has ever had enough money. And i got to say this especially to this room. Because again, this room is not the wealthy room of Calvary, right? This room is not where the money is. This room is where people are like, I would love to have a job, okay? And then you get a job and you're like, what if I made $50,000 a year. And you're like, that would be amazing. And then if you're making 50, you're like, what if I made 100, six figure, 100,000. You get to 100,000, you're like, mm, 200,000, right? Like there's never enough. You'll never make enough money. You'll never have enough possessions. You'll never have a nice enough house. Here's the problem. I'm a homeowner, right? And you fix something in your house. You're like, yeah, that's good. And then you look over there, you're like, dang it. Now I gotta fix that. It's never enough. You will never have enough money. You'll never have enough possessions. If the thing that's going to make you happy is stuff, you'll never have enough of it. Listen, you'll never have enough fame. You'll, like, you'll never have enough fame. You'll never have a big enough platform. You'll never have a big enough following. If you're like some TikTok star and you're like, I got a million followers, you know what you're going to want? Two million. That's what you're going to want. It's never enough. You never reach this level where you're like, I'm good. I've had enough. I have enough. Um, you will never have enough fame. Next, you'll never have enough approval. Like, listen, I've talked about approval, like needing people to approve of you. Um, here's the problem for some of you. The, the, the problem for some of you who seek the idol of approval is you actually get approval from almost everyone. And do you know that that's actually a problem in your life? That's not a blessing. That's a curse. Because here's what you do. You do something, like, like even take a, take a pastor who comes up here on stage and does a sermon. Let's say I get 99 emails after a sermon that are like, wow, you're the most amazing pastor. You're like the best I've ever heard, the best sermon. And then I get one email that says, I hate you and I'm never coming back, which I, I've gotten. All right, so, so, so listen, how much time am I going to think about the 99? Almost never. 
How much time am I going to just be twisted up on that one email? The entire next month, right? And the same is true with you. Like, you know that if there's one person who doesn't like you, doesn't approve of you, doesn't like your post, doesn't like your performance, doesn't like your book you wrote, doesn't like your project you made, whatever your thing is, there's never enough. That's the thing. Idols don't self-regulate. Listen, you'll never achieve utopia. Like, some of you have this deep desire to see justice done in this world. And whether that's racial justice or sexual justice or gender justice or justice issues around life or abortion or, or Medicare or anything like that, anything you want, any utopia you want to see, here's the problem. Until Jesus comes back, it's never going to be perfect. And so if you hang your hope and your peace on, I will never be at peace until the world is perfect, you'll just never be at peace. It's never going to happen. It doesn't mean we don't work toward it. It just means if that becomes the most important thing that defines your peace and your meaning and your purpose and your hope in this world, it will always disappoint you because idols don't self-regulate. Listen, you'll never accomplish enough. You never will. It's like to the person who works like 14-hour days thinking, I can just get a little more done. The wisest thing anyone ever said to me, a mentor of mine uh, who's an elder here at this church, said to me when I started as a pastor here, Brian, your work will always expand to fill the hours you give it. It always will. So if you work eight hours a day, you'll have eight hours of work. If you say, I'm going to work 14 hours a day, you're going to have 14 hours of work. Work will never be done. It's never finished. You'll never accomplish. You're never going to check that last thing on your list and be like, I am satisfied now. It's never going to happen. If achievement is your idol, if getting things done is your idol, you will never be happy. And listen, I've said this before. I'll say it again. Your spouse will never be enough. They just never will be. They'll never satisfy the deepest part of your soul. I love my wife. I would lay my life down for her. She will never satisfy my soul like God does. And if I ask her to be the God of my life, it will crush her and it will destroy and disappoint me. So listen to me. Solomon has a thousand women, 700 wives, 300 concubines. Why? Because idols do not self-regulate. Idols do not self-regulate. They never say that's enough. And then what does it say on the back half of verse three? Very simple. It says, and his wives, let them astray. Why? Because God said, if you go marry them, they'll lead you astray. God's a promise maker. He's a promise keeper. God knows exactly what is going to happen when Solomon marries these women. God knows that women, these people are going to have an impact on his life. And you need to know that the people around you have an impact on your life. That you cannot surround yourself who have idol- with people who are filled with idolatry and filled with love for things of this world. And expect it not to have an impact on you. It goes on this way, verse 4. It says, as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord, his God, as the heart of David, his father, had been. Two observations here. Number one, if you were here last week, you heard the story of David. David, who slept with Bathsheba. David, who used his power to really manipulate and coerce Bathsheba. David, who sent a man into the army to be killed so he could marry Bathsheba or have the child. David, who was just a total scumbag in the story. You know how God describes him? You know how he's described? David, his father, whose heart was fully devoted to the Lord. Isn't it great news for anyone here that God can still look at you in your sin and your failure and your weakness and your past and your shame and say, her heart was totally devoted to me still. His heart was totally devoted because it's not David's perfection that God is after. He's after his repentance. I think that's good news for someone here who's still dealing with your guilt and your shame of your past. God can still look upon you and say his heart was totally devoted. Her heart was totally devoted, not because she was perfect, but because she turned from her sin but then I also want to observe this, that it says as Solomon grew old, his wife turned his heart. I just want to observe that when you grow old, you don't become a different person. 
Some people think like I'm young and I struggle with lust or I'm young and I struggle with anger. I'm young and I struggle with jealousy. But when I get old, I'll just be mature. Can I just enlighten you tonight to understand that when you grow old, you do not grow better. You grow to be more of what you already are. When you grow old, if you are a stingy, greedy person, you're not going to become a generous old man. If you're a jealous, petty young woman, you're not going to become this old, wise lady who's never jealous of anyone. You will become more of what you already are. So my big question for you tonight, when it comes to your maturity, when it comes to your spiritual life, is not where you are currently positioned, but it's where you're pointed. Let me put it this way. Where you are pointed is more important than when you are positioned. Some of you right now, your life is a wreck. You feel like a mess, but you are pointing yourself toward becoming a God-honoring follower of Jesus who lives and loves like him. And listen, as you age, you will become more of what you already are. It goes on this way in verse 5. It says that he followed Ashtoreth, the god of the Sidonians, and Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. And in so doing, Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. And on the hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chamos, the detestable god of Moab, and for Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. And he did the same for all of his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. Uh, Let me just be really clear here. Um, Your idolatry will always lead to action. It will always lead to behavior. The issue tonight isn't just like, do you believe the right things about God? It's that what you believe and what you worship will actually lead itself toward behavior. And here it's going to describe two specific gods. And I actually want to talk to you about those gods and help you understand how this is still playing out. I want to talk to you about the two gods, um, I think two gods that are named here. Okay, let's talk about the first. The first is Ashtoreth. Uh, sometimes in the Bible, this god, god or goddess is referred to as Asherah or, or Astart. This is the goddess of fertility. Listen, in the ancient world, the most important thing was how many babies you had. Why? Because most babies died in childbirth. And so you have a bunch of babies, you have a bunch of babies, it gives you a line, it gives you a lineage, it makes you successful. And so what is this goddess? Is the goddess of fertility. That's what's being described here. Here's a little picture. It's not a great picture, but it's the best we have for tonight. Um, this is the picture of the goddess that is being described here. And here's how this goddess functioned. There would be temples for this goddess, and if you were a young woman who wanted to be fertile, if you were a young woman who wanted to have babies, you would go to the temple, and the way you would worship, the way you would approach the goddess, right here, this god, the god of fertility, what you would do is you would go up to the temple, and you would engage with the temple prostitute. Talk about a sick system, right? Like, here's the system. You want to get pregnant. You're desperate to have a baby. And so you roll up on these temple priests who are rich, wealthy, powerful, and well-connected. And they say, well, if you want to get pregnant someday, you're going to have to have sex with me first. This is how it worked. This is how it worked in the ancient world. This is how the goddess of fertility worked. And here's what Solomon is being called out for. He's building altars and temples to this goddess so that women have to go to powerful men to have sex with them to be confident that they're going to have babies someday. And here's your temptation tonight. Your temptation is to look at a shrine or an altar or a goddess like this and go, those silly ancient people. Thank God we live in 2021 where we don't do nonsense like this anymore, where we don't have these kind of detestable practices. And you say that with a straight face as if powerful, strong, wealthy, well-connected men still don't abuse women for sex. 
You say that with a straight face as if we do not live in a culture that says women are objects to be used rather than people to be loved. You say that with a straight face as if our culture has arrived at a place where women no longer feel in bondage to men to get what they cannot get on their own, where women are not manipulated and shamed and abused into sex when they never wanted it in the first place. Listen, can I be clear tonight? That the idol of sex at the expense of women is alive and well in our world today. In Solomon's day, he builds a temple to it. But let's not be naive enough to believe that somehow we've overcome that idol and it's not present in our nation, in our culture, in our world today. Let me give you the second idol, the second temple that Solomon builds. He builds it to Moloch. Moloch and and Chemosh. Chemosh and Moloch, uh, scholars think, are probably the same. It's a different way of describing the same God. And this is the God of financial prosperity. This is the God of financial prosperity, that if you worship at this God's altar, it's not that you'll have babies. It's that you're going to do well in life. You're going to be prosperous. You are going to be rich. Let me show you a sketch or a drawing of what we understand about Moloch. I'll describe this for you. The idol Moloch is right here, and Moloch is a giant metal statue. And inside the giant metal statue, they light a fire. And the fire is burning up from within, and it's burning, making the metal searing hot. And I'm just going to be honest with you. Like, I'm a dad of two kids. This is hard for me to talk about, but it's what's in the Bible, so we have to. Here's what you did with the idol of Moloch. You took your firstborn baby when they were real young, and you brought them to Moloch. And you came up to the idol of Moloch, this burning hot statue of metal, and you gave your baby to a priest, and the baby put the priest on the burning hands of Moloch. And the burning hands of Moloch would allow it to roll down into the flames, and your child would be burned to death. And they knew it was painful. They knew it was excruciating. So much so that what would happen around Moloch is they would blow horns and play drums to drown out the sound of the children screaming as they died. This is one of the most horrifying idols in the Old Testament. In fact, it's one of those ones that kind of weaves through. And anytime you see Moloch, you got to remember that's the child sacrifice where for the God of prosperity, they would sacrifice children. And again, You're so convinced, like there's such an arrogance of the modern world to be like, again, those silly, ancient, silly people sacrificing their God to the idol of wealth and prosperity, sacrificing their children for the sake of money. And again, you say that with a straight face as if there aren't parents who sacrifice their children's well-being to go build wealth, make money, and build their company. As if there weren't dads who have abandoned their children entirely on the altar of financial success. As if some of you didn't grow up in houses where you would give all of the wealth in the world to just have time with your mom and dad because they completely sacrificed you on the altar of making money and becoming famous and becoming rich. Listen, don't you dare think for a moment that the idea that we would sacrifice our children for the sake of financial prosperity is a thing of the past. I need to remind you tonight that the idol of financial success at the expense of children is alive and well in our world today. Don't think you're better. Don't think you've made it. Don't think our culture is somehow free of idolatry, free of this wickedness, free of this thing that we do. I need us to remember, idolatry is rampant in wealthy societies. Wealth is a magnet toward idolatry. Listen, I need to remind you tonight that worship has consequences. Idolatry has consequences. And the idolatry of your life and of your parents' life and of your parents' parents' life affects you and affects this world and affects the place that we live don't you dare think for a moment that idolatry has left our, our nation, idolatry has left our society. It goes on this way in verse 9. It says, The Lord became angry with Solomon 
because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's commands. Um, And here's what I want to just identify briefly. Um, God forbids Solomon to do something, but Solomon doesn't listen to the voice of the Lord. Like Solomon walks into idolatry because he won't listen to God. And I just want to be really clear tonight um, that listening to the voice of the Lord, hearing God's voice is essential to you fighting idolatry. I'll put it this way. If you don't know what the real God is like, you will always follow a counterfeit one. If you don't know what God is actually like, if you don't know what the real, true, living God is like, you will always find yourself following a counterfeit God. And here's the answer. Like, how do we deal with it? How do we know what the real God is like? We read the Bible regularly, passionately, carefully. We text it to each other. We think about it. We study it. We sing about it. We make the scriptures a part of our life. Listen to me. The road out of idolatry begins with the Bible. It begins with you knowing the scriptures and loving the scriptures and studying the scriptures and getting rid of your excuses that you don't have time and you can't understand it and you can't memorize it and you don't get it and you don't want to do it. I get all of that. But listen, at some point you're going to have to decide, I am going to know and trust the true God, the God of the Bible. And in order to do that, you're going to have to read the Bible You're going to have to become a reader. You're going to have to research and understand it. You're going to need to buy a study Bible or get into a Bible study or or research it online or be a person who's thinking about this. Listen, you're going to have to become a Bible person if you have any hope against the idolatry that has run rampant in our culture and run rampant in our world. Here's how we're going to close out. Verse 11 um, of the, the text tonight says this. It says, so the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant of my decrees, which I commanded, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Like in other words, Solomon walks in idolatry. In other words, Solomon walks in this kind of idolatry where he just gives into his worst impulses and God sees that. And then God says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take everything from you. Your kingdom, your wealth, your power, your women, every bit of your fame, I'm going to take that away from you. And you might be tempted tonight to think that God is taking all of these things away from Solomon to punish him because he's mad at him, because he's angry at him. What we're going to see next week as we look at it, his entire kingdom falls apart. There's a civil war. Everything implodes. And you might be tempted to think that that is God's wrath. But can I persuade you tonight that God taking everything from Solomon is not his wrath. It is actually his mercy. It's his mercy. Like, let me say it this way. The most terrifying thing God can do is to let you continue worshiping your idols. The most terrifying thing about the wrath of God is that sometimes the wrath of God says, I'll let you go do what you want to do. You want to worship the idol of money or power or sex or comfort or ideology. You want to worship those idols? Go for it. See, the most terrifying thing God could do is let you continue to worship your idols. Listen to me. The most merciful thing God can do is tear your idol from your hand. That is God's mercy. So if your idol is approval and suddenly you go through a season where everyone's mad at you, that might be God's mercy on your life. If your idol is money and wealth and possessions and you lose all your money and your income and the best stuff that you love, that is God's mercy on your life. If your idol is sex and then suddenly you find yourself single or suddenly you find yourself in this place where that's no longer an option, that is God's mercy on your life. Why is it God's mercy? It's God's mercy because when God removes your idols, he removes your chronic discontent. Remember what I said at the beginning, idolatry is the source of your chronic discontent. 
And there's a God in heaven who says, I do not want you to live in that kind of discontent because when you worship idols, when you pursue something more than God, God is robbed of glory and you are robbed of peace. So what does God want to do? He wants to rob from you. He wants to take from you. He wants to take those things away from you. Not because he hates you, not because he's punishing you, not because he's trying to smack you upside the head, but because he loves you. He's like a father who sees a child reach up onto a counter and grab a sharp knife and then runs over to the child and rips it out of the child's hand. Not because he hates the child, but because he loves the child and wants to protect the child. See, this is what God does. He rips your idols out of your hands. And if God loves you and wants to be merciful to you, he will do that to you. He will rob you of all of the things you want to trust more than God. Maybe in this last year, 2020, pandemic and civil unrest and lockdowns and all the different political crazy things we've gone through, maybe God has ripped some idols from your hand. And I want you to worship tonight of God's great mercy in your life, that he would not allow you to continue to live that way. Um, Our band's going to come up. I want to read to you one last scripture tonight. It says this in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Jesus himself says these words. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to Jesus. Come to him tonight. Come to him because he's the real thing. Come to him because this chronic discontent you feel is because you've been running to every other thing other than God. You've been building your life around something other than God. And Jesus says if you're tired, if you're discontented, if you're discouraged, if you're overwhelmed, if you're anxious, if you're depressed, if the world isn't working the way you would hope the world would work, come to me and you'll find rest for your souls. Listen, there's nothing else and no one in this world that can do that like Jesus. And there are some of you who don't even know Jesus. You haven't even trusted Jesus. And I just want to invite you to call out to him like he's there, like he's listening, and take Jesus' word. This is a promise that he makes. Come to me when you're weary. Come to me when you're burdened, when you're tired, when you're burned out, when you don't feel like you can handle it anymore. And he, Jesus, will give you rest. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for tonight. Thank you for this subject. I'm just aware that there are people in the room who don't think this has anything to do with them. And I God, God, I just pray in your mercy you would convict their hearts tonight. There are people living in shame right now, feeling guilt, feeling heaviness. And God, I pray your mercy would lift their hearts tonight. And God, for the rest of us who know there's idols in our heart, who knows there's things we want to go after and value and treasure and think about more than you, God, help us to turn our hearts to Jesus. Help us to declare with one voice tonight that there's nothing better than you, God. You're the real thing. You're the real deal. Help us worship like that's true tonight. God, may we be a church that forsakes the idols of this world. May we be a church that lifts up the one true name, the name of Jesus Christ, the one and only God. And it's in his name we pray. And all God's people said real loud, amen.